Hello and welcome to FinTech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today on the show is part three of our open banking series, specifically focusing on Canada. And to address this, I've asked Andrew Moore of EQ Bank, Ben Harrison of Portage Ventures, and Daniel Eberhardt of Coho to come back on the podcast and to discuss the state of open banking in Canada. It was an enjoyable and lively conversation, and I hope you enjoy listening to it as well. And with that, here's my interview with the three of them. Gentlemen, thank you for taking the time today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, appreciate it. So this is the third in a series of podcasts on open banking. And today we're specifically looking at it from the perspective of the state of open banking in Canada and where we hope open banking will go. So I have a esteemed panel, some of you uh, previous guests on the podcast and one new member. So I'm going to start off with the new with a new person, let them introduce themselves. Andrew, tell us a little bit about what it is you do. Yeah, so I'm, uh, thank you very much. I'm, I'm uh, the president and uh, CEO of Equitable Bank and an EQ Bank. We position ourselves as Canada's challenger bank. So we're trying to find new ways to, to the bank and drive change in the entire banking system to make the deal that Canadians get from the banking system better. You know, I'd say where we really need at this point in, in thinking about that is through our EQ Bank stack, which is a technical stack and an approach to business, which is it's all sitting on a cloud, cloud-based platform. We've mm-hmm. already pre-built uh, the platform to think about what open banking might look like. So we, we have a great mid-tier, we're ready to write APIs, ready for open banking. So we position the bank to be, to be very organized around that. And we're strong believers that, that open banking will uh, democratize finance in Canada and give a better deal to Canadian consumers. Um, and not, not really something that we're going to do alone, but we're going to do it alert with ourselves, with partners, uh, including uh, some of the fintechs that are uh, you know, also represented here through others, uh, in terms of delivering better services to Canadians. Um, and some of that is, is things beyond our imagination, but hopefully open banking can allow a whole bunch more imagination to come to the market and create a more vibrant ecosystem that people get better services by that. Agreed. And uh, interesting point on, on, on the imagination. You know, the, the analogy I used in the previous podcast was, you know, create this and a million flowers will bloom that we haven't even thought about yet. So let's move forward. So Ben Harrison, previous guest, tell us about yourself and refresh everyone's memory in a while. Sure. Uh, so Ben Harrison, um, I head up what we call our, our partnership and policy group at, at Portage. So I sort of sit in the middle of the traditional, somewhat traditional FI and, and the fintech world. So a big part of my role is helping to find opportunities to connect those organizations to deliver on you know, strategic objectives and, and, and initiatives uh, that, that each are trying to accomplish. I think another really important piece to what, what we do as you know, an investor in the fintech space is try and advocate for the type of foundational change that we need to create simply a more level playing field for fintechs and others outside of the, the big five to do what they can do for customers and let the customer, let the business decide which organization they should be working for. So we spend an inordinate amount of time, I think, relative to, to most, but in particular other VCs advocating for these sorts of positive, progressive, innovative, pro-competition changes. And so our organization has been active on the open banking front from the very beginning, very active on the payments modernization piece, which is another component to this discussion and happy to be back on the podcast again. So thanks for the invite, Jason. I oh, appreciate it. You were a guest back way back on episode 36. So uh, by the time this airs, I believe this will be episode, let's see, it's, it's aiming for episode 161. So wow. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's been a while. It's been a while. Yeah. yeah. And another previous guest, uh, Daniel Everhart. Daniel, tell us about, uh, remind, refresh everybody's memory as to who you are. Yeah, so I'm the 
the the CEO and co-founder of Coho, um, I would argue that that we're kind of leading NeoBank, and there's there's different work versions of that definition. But we are we're trying to do two things. I think we a lot like Andrew, and, and certainly aligned at trying to think we're trying to achieve in the market, which is how do we give everybody great financial foundation, and and how do we democratize access to the best financial products? And naturally, that dovetails a lot with our conversation today around open banking and around a, a sort of the automation of what I would call an informed customer, or at least removing a lot of friction from that process. So I've been, uh, I don't know if fighting this fight is the right word, but I've been like watching the ecosystem evolve. We've been at this for five years from the time when the conversation is, can the neobank model even exist in Canada to now it seems like we are starting to have real conversations about an RT or real time rail and about open banking. I'm interested to see what the other folks on this call think about the credibility of those and the progress, but I have certainly paid very close attention to the ecosystem for the last five years. So. Yeah. And uh, for those of you looking for the previous conversation, Daniel was also a way back guest on episode 51 and actually a repeat guest on episode 93, uh, the IPC FinTech panel with myself, Adam Fileski, Dave Nugent, and Zach Brown. So yeah, anyone's looking to go back and find out more about Coho, that's that's where you go. So, and oh, I forgot to mention that uh, Andrew, there was a, one of your colleagues was on, is on the podcast, and that is on episode 149, which uh, will air before this one does. So yes, anyway, thank you all for your time. And let me start off by being the person who points out the obvious. I go back to Canada's got a terrible case of Stockholm Syndrome when it comes to its banks. We are subject to an oligopoly, which by every measure of economics is not a good thing for the end consumer because they will extract outsized rent which we have seen due to outsized profitability based on, in terms of banks, if you look at the profitability of these banks versus others in the world that based on population size, they are some of the most profitable in the world, largely due to lack of competition. And frankly, everybody seems to hate their bank, maybe love another bank, even though they're all different flavors of vanilla, all doing the exact same thing. And they love to invest in the stocks for dividends, but we're getting, I liken the dividend argument to here, take $100 from me and give me back, give me back five cents and somehow I'm happy. I don't understand that argument. So I am, I am no friend to the big five, as I've said on many occasions here. But let's talk about the current state. What is the current state of open banking as you see it individually? Who wants to go first? I'll go first. I mean, I am encouraged that the committee's getting going again, and they, they seem mm -hmm. to be on a more accelerating timeline than, uh, than I had. So there, there's an advisory committee, this is which I guess, just to ground us in the facts, an advisory group committee with uh, four people on it that are uh, meant to be providing the next set of advice to the minister. We've been waiting really since the beginning, since they published their report at the beginning of 2020, the next step. And I guess last week, was it? Uh, they came out with the next steps uh, coming around with five uh, different meetings to, to meet with uh, various stakeholders to figure out what the next steps forward are. And that seems to be on a fairly accelerated timeline. So that's somewhat encouraging, but encouraging in an environment that, frankly, I'm pretty depressed about speed local banking. So, so, you know, maybe there's a little bit of light here. The bar, is, the bar is low. The bar is very low. Exactly. But uh, nonetheless, to see some progress, you know, I, I, I guess I'm an optimist at heart. So, uh, you know, we've been at it for a few years. And I would say we just got to jump in the pool and get going. We've got to make the decision we're going to do this thing. Yeah, there's, there's issues to resolve for sure. But if, why can't we just somebody stand on the ground and say, this is going to happen. It's going to happen on this timeline. And in that time, then we're going to figure out what all the problems are going to be solved. And we haven't yet. Well, Where's the political will? Like, who's who, like, what politician is going to champion this, right? It's, you're talking about, more recently, the prime minister got up and thanked the big five for helping save the country. It's like, really, really? What, what Faustian pact did you make in the background to make that happen? So, um, <laughs> I mean, think about that on that, on that point, like who's jumping in it? I mean, this to me, this appeals to all, all levels of political, you know, all political spectrum. If you're, if you're coming from a more, you know, left wing social safety net, your primary concern, 
You can think about how you know Fintechs could build services on top of the open banking to help that. You can think about if you're a, you know the middle class, the fabled middle class consumer is trying to juggle their TFSAs or RSPs who pay their bills, but you know while they're sitting the kids to soccer, you know they they can help open banking. And then, and frankly, the pro competition aspects for those people from a more free market kind of mindset. This is this is a way to unplug the, the kind of the, the power of some very you know large institutions and, and pro, pro deliver more value to the entrepreneurial community and so on. So to me, it shouldn't be it shouldn't be a political. You know, everybody should be aligned around this thing. Everything's politics. Daniel, yeah. you had a comment. I have a question for Andrew. Um, I think like you, uh, I'm I'm an optimist. I think you kind of have to be an optimist if you're going to live in in this space. Um, Otherwise, you wouldn't have started. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they're they're working on it though. But how does this round of because because I look at this and and like let's let's be cynical for a minute. We've been talking about this for four or five years. We're agreeing to have conversations about open banking. Like we're agreeing to talk about it. How does this round of conversations feel any different to you than the ones that we kicked off in 2019? Like, do you think there's more nuance? Do you think there's more direction and more visibility? I'm curious how, how, how Ben, maybe you too, but I'm curious how you think about it, Andrew. Well, I only think a little bit of confidence is the sort of speed with which they came out to this. Here's a new consultation, and they're going to be closed relatively quickly, suggests some urgency for this. And I do understand that the minister herself, the new minister of finance, is actually interested in this file. In the middle of a COVID kind of issues where you, you could easily sort of say, well, put that on the back burner until we're through this current crisis. I do understand that she's got some engagement in this issue. So, but I think, you know, the key roadblock right now is somebody with the political desire to drive this through and we haven't yet seen that. So until we actually see that public mm-hmm. so I would maybe your thoughts? Yeah, just to, to Daniel's question, I'd say what is different is that there's actually a proposal to discuss. So as Andrew mentioned, the advisory committee, who, you know, who I'll give full points for, or two rather for for trying to really drive this forward within the department, both within the, uh, the sort of bureaucracy, but but more importantly at the political level, there are these five documents that articulate, I think, somewhat clearly, a view of how should open banking be built in Canada. That is far more than we have seen, right? Like the first consultation paper was tell us what you think about open banking and like what are the good things about it and what are the bad things. They came out at the end of the year, and yes, it took a long time to say we should move forward, and we're going to work to put a proposal together that says how we should do it. I would also add what I find encouraging, although my skepticism outweighs my my optimism at this point, but I'd say what is encouraging is when we talk about the spectrum of government-led versus industry-led, right? Like those have been the two ends of the spectrum that we've talked about for quite a while, and I think you can plot who stands where on the spectrum based on your business. And while they call it a hybrid model, I'd say the message that I take from the advisory committee's work is they strongly believe that government absolutely needs to play an important role in designing the framework. From a legislative standpoint, this wouldn't just be something like, hey, industry, go and figure out. Like They're talking about legislative change to make this happen, putting in place governance structures that they would oversee. And while there are Without going into the nuance of the detail and discussion, I, I won't go there. But like all of that is, I find encouraging, and I think will help shape a very different tenor for this conversation than what we've seen in the past. The big fundamental question is: they can put a report in front of the minister, but what will happen with it? We saw what happened with the first consultation paper, where we had months and months and months and months of delay. I don't know where this will go after that report is delivered, but I have confidence that the advisory committee is moving this forward and doing what they can to to get an answer for us. 
So, Daniel, do you have a contrarian opinion to that, or are you on the same side? No, I mean, look, I think maybe I don't have a contrarian opinion, but just like I think what Ben's alluding to, the real gating factor is actually the approval. And I think that's always been the biggest risk to this process. And now we have maybe a framework through which to shape the discussion, but that's a low hurdle in terms of actually now having a conversation when you're actually going to get the pushback around an articulated position on open banking. So, Mm -hmm. and based like I, Andrew, I agree with some of your timelines and it does feel like the conversations are more concrete in nature, but based on, I'm just trying to understand why, where this urgency is coming from, or if there's real urgency, because the last, based on how long the, and it's not a reflection on the advisory committee, but based on how long the last set of conversations took, this is like the hard part that's in front of us. We we haven't really done the hard part yet. No, I mean, I completely agree with you. So I'm trying to map that to the historical timeline here and just like, I don't know where to stand on it. It, But it seems to be on trend. And here's why. I mean, I got my hands in lots of different sectors of the financial industry. And what I've noticed in the last, I'd say, two years is more urgency around regulatory reform than I've seen in the late the, the 10 years leading up to it. I mean, everything from the creation of the CSA to open banking to changes that are making something similar to an RA model in the U.S. possible in Canada to like literally, it seems like everyone's got a fire on their butts to get things cleaned up. And I wonder if it's because simply we took enough egg on our face for falling so far behind the rest of the world. And now the most recent one example of that is Canada literally getting called out as a money laundering haven for lack of AML controls. And I wonder if it just got to the state where it was enough independent reports where it's like, oh, okay, crap, we got to do something. We got to do something. So I don't know, but it just seems to be really on trend with this greater push towards modernization of regulation in Canada. The other, just I'll add one, the other big win was open, uh, the the RTR picked MasterCard to run, announce their RTR rail. I think that just came out today, which is another like big win uh, in the the Canadian space. So that's a positive step as well. Interesting. So, all right. How much do you think the Canadian regulators have learned from what's worked or what hasn't worked in the rest of the world? I guess one of the benefits of being a late entrant to this is getting to see the natural experiments happening everywhere else. And as we know from the implementation of PSD2 in Europe, yeah, okay, we have APIs, but they're not that good. Like there's the very cynical big bank approach of, oh, we have to do this, but they didn't say how we have to do this exactly and how functionally we have to make it. So with the current discussions and current framework, are you seeing that consideration being taken or are you worried that might happen here as well? Who wants to go first? So I think the folks leading the secretariat, the individuals within the Department of Finance leading this work in partnership with the advisory committee get all of those things, you know, starting mm-hmm. with Julian Brito and Saskia Tolsma who started this and now Erin O'Brien and her team, like they've engaged to the nth degree with all of the different relevant players in the markets that we would be looking at. How far that has gone, and to your point, like, and, and maybe this is me being too specific here, but I don't know that the key issue for us with open banking is who will oversee this, right? Like there's no regulator that is actually like the ACCC in Australia who's been active Mm. on this file, right? Like fundamentally, that is a key question to all of this. So the department from a policy standpoint can be supportive of it, which I think no doubt they are. But in terms of the questions around oversight and ultimately setting the rules, you know, there's some reference to that, again, in the pre-read material. But I don't know how far beyond the folks in the department who've been leading this work, the questions, sort of concerns and learnings that you flagged are on these topics. I would say one maybe other quick thing. One of the challenges we've always had with the definition of open banking in, in the context of the Canadian consultation is like, we started very focused as everyone else did on like checking account, bank account data, right? Like a very narrow set of data. 
And while mm -hmm. we've debated the merits of this, every other jurisdiction has already gone ahead and further than that, or will be very shortly. Like Australia just went ahead and added a lot more data and the scope of data into their implementation of the CDR, the consumer mm -hmm. data right. In the UK, not long after they launched, they started and established a working group on open finance. So mm -hmm. you're inevitably going to go there. In the pre-read material for the proposal, they do reference like what other data should we be looking at? Because I think it's acknowledged that starting where other you know, other entities started three years ago is probably not the best point. But how big of a fight that's going to create. Like, I think the scope of data, when we get into the discussion on what the framework should look like in Canada, I think that'll be one of the key, that'll be one of the key points because you can imagine certain groups will want to keep that scope as small and narrow as possible. And another, I think, larger set will want that data to be more broad because fundamentally, if you can't introduce this framework and have it address fundamentally this issue of screen scraping, right? Like you got to look at what's all the data that's being collected today. And if you're not making that data, the equivalent of sort of that data available, I think you're going to have yeah. real issues. And this is exactly what the UK went through with a narrow set of data and then having issues with continuing to, to require some form of data aggregation to collect that data to fulfill the use cases that were already in flight. And here's Sorry, my general, no, that's, that's fine. But I'll tell you, like, so, I mean, just to sum that up, first off, and I'll let everybody else chime in a minute. So we're like, you know, at this stage, what you're saying more or less is that the general how we're going to do this hasn't necessarily been fully addressed yet. It's more so we need to do this is the first addressing, but that's fine. I mean, the good thing is we are going to learn from other jurisdictions. The second piece is your comment about the scope of the amount of data. And this is, this is something that makes me go nuclear, right? Because frankly, currently under Canadian privacy laws, we are the end user, the client is entitled to 100% of the data that the company has on them. It is their information. That right is established. And to basically limit under, whether it be open banking, screen scraping, whatever technology they want to do and argue that it's their own data is to me just a vulgar perversion of that. Like the reality is if I am producing something and you are benefiting from it, it's still, I still have a right to it. And for you to not permit me to access it and direct that information to wherever I want it to go in a user-friendly way is just nothing short of vindictive. Anyway, that's my rant. I think I would just say, like the other piece we're missing here, sorry, I'll stop talking after this. Like, <laughs> we still, we still don't have consumers in Canada, individuals, put aside small business, still do not have a, a data right. You know, yeah, we have Pepita, we have personal information rights, but not specifically per, but outlined for data. Nor data mobility, which is really the, yeah. the, key, the key piece to all of this, that data should be shared seamlessly, easily, securely amongst organizations. We don't have that, and we still need that Correct. to make this all work. Daniel, you had your hand up. No, no, go ahead, Andrew. Well, I mean, I, I think <laughs> the, the digital charter at least kind of addresses that, but even a higher level in open banking, so the article for the digital charter hopefully gets there, although that's not inactive. But I, mean, I totally agree with you. Unless, you. unless you can extract all the data that gives you your personal balance sheet and, and sort of income statement of some kind, the ability to, to build value-added services on top of that. You know, if you're a wealth simple, you, you actually need to, and you're trying to give insight to where people, how people's investments should be allocated. You, you actually need, if, I mean, if customers want to help you do that, you probably need to see the entire, entire balance sheet, otherwise, otherwise you're, you're missing critical pieces of information. So absolutely, that, data, that, that customer data right is really at the heart of this thing. If you can create that, it may take longer than we would all wish, but at least you can start to kind of evolve down that route where this, this gets us to where we want to be over the next decade or so. I think that's, a, that's a sort of timeline, unfortunately, we're working. Yep, I mean, uh, and, add, go ahead. I'll add one element of the conversation that I don't think gets talked about enough, and maybe so quickly, anecdotally, when we had the, the CERB, the CERB payments come through this year, 
Coho's was the first market to move on that. And we allowed people to go, let, get their serve easier than a lot of folks or, or earlier than a lot of folks. We then added an early payroll or access that early and continued to kind of innovate. A few things came out of that experience. One, the United States leveraged fintech heavily for their government stimulus and support programs and by and large had much larger fraud, much more sort of democratic distribution of, of funds and, and materials. Canadian government didn't even engage with fintechs or, or deliberately took a stance not to. When it came through that process, there was a well-publicized massive amount of fraud on CERB because of massive data breaches within our banks where people could then apply for CERB benefits on behalf of unknowing and unwitting Canadians. We saw this at Coho and recognized what was happening and took steps to limit that fraud and, and put a number of risk controls in place before the industry asked us to. So going through that process, it was just very clear kind of what the comfort level of, of the Canadian government was and also some of the utilities of fintech. But one of the conversations that doesn't happen a lot with open banking is the long tail narrative that all of these people are coming through. We have a almost deliberately limited purview of who this customer is because we're using all kinds of like wacky methods to identify them because we don't have open banking. But if you truly had open banking, you truly had a holistic set of customer data coming through the door, we would all benefit massively from a fraud reduction perspective that we would see early benefits on today, but enormous long tail benefits. Like if you just had ubiquitous, there would certainly be different risk vectors and different attack vectors, but the long tail visibility that you would have on a customer from a fraud perspective would be enormously beneficial to the industry. And I know it's a lot like a lot of these other things, there would be an ecosystem that would develop, but that conversation I think is often missed or, or understated when we talk about open banking. And I think Jason, go back to one of your conversation, your opening comments around you know money laundering as well. I think it's really hard for a financial institution to have a holistic view uh, that, that we can even affect the system. You know, we, we just send in what we see of a customer in the FinTrack. We hope that they're coming, connecting the dots, but I have some skepticism. Well, we know, we know what reports have said about that, but continue. But, but no, I mean, I, it's pretty clear, you know, that's somewhere where, whereas, you know, FinTech's challenger banks, regular banks, our artificial intelligence machine learning is ahead of probably what we've got in that area, and we could probably do a much better job, frankly. Absolutely. Frank Andrew, you're, you're probably better at this than we are because I think your client's probably a little bit older than we are. But like one of the things that's always anomalous or whack, so wacky to me is 98, 97, whatever. We have massive bank account penetration in Canada. And we work really hard to identify 70% of coho applicants digitally through KYC. Now, if you're doing the job really, really well, you might be at 75 or 80% or something like that. That's probably closer to where Andrew is. I don't know. But the vast majority of these people have bank accounts at existing financial institutions. Mm -hmm. And just the technology isn't there. Right. And then so we, you know, we, then we're forced to use screen scraping to make connections. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's just not sensible. It's just, it's, well, it's not. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. Well, and, and then the banks turn around and say that, oh, it's not secure. And, you know, we get all these AP, we get all these screen scraping calls per day. This is taxing our systems. And it's like, because you designed it that way. Like, this is not a bug. It's a feature. You have not, you have not embraced tool sets that would permit this sort of problem you're calling a problem to no longer be a problem. So you can't, you can't fault people for, for, for basically willfully giving their information to an organization that they wish to give it to. So it's, it's a roundabout circular argument with them. So let me, let me ask a more direct question to the two, to the two challenger banks on the call. What does open banking mean to the development of your companies? Like what does the future look like without giving away your full kind of product roadmap? How important is this and how does it transform you if it were to happen tomorrow? Daniel, do you want to go ahead? Sure. So, I mean, our roadmap's public, so, so <laughs> we're not too worried about I'm it. Googling um, it now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I think not as 
directly. So, so we talked about the KYC. Certainly that's one element where it's, there, there's a lot of operational lift associated with that. The thing that the open banking does is it creates an ecosystem of what I would call like independent arbiters. And what I mean by that is there will now be independent people who can assess and look at your data and say, this is good, bad financial product and add a layer of objectivity. And that indirectly benefits Coho in that like one of the things that's always kind of really problematic about the Canadian banking environment is if you bank at the big six banks and you have less than $5,000, they pay you 0.01, maybe 0.05% on a savings account. Like to me, that is borderline criminal in the sense that like that's going to get outpaced by inflation 200 to one. And their NIM, the bank's net interest margin is like 2.5, 2.8. Like there's no reason the bank should make 250 times what a financially set threshold of $5,000 is. And so if you have the ubiquitous ability to identify that independently as a bad financial product, that benefits Coho. I think that if you can sort of ease, make it much easier for Canadians to have a, a sense of what is a good or bad financial product, that benefits Coho. We more directly much benefit from like the RTR and the payments gateway, just as kind of a non-bank entity that that stuff is much more important to us from an operational perspective than I think open banking is. But I think open banking helps us in that the more informed the consumer is, the better it is for Coho, I believe. And certainly from a KYC perspective, it's it's useful. You mean you mean just transparency around competition is going to benefit you? Yeah. <laughs> what, what a novel I mean, idea. We, we think so. If, if it doesn't, then we have a, then we have a real pro product problem. <laughs> well, so. and, and I think you, I think you defined your, the bank's, the bank's problem in the first place. Right. I also, I'm going to, I'm going to pause there and say one of the other things that's, that I find just frustrating with the average Canadian's viewpoint of this. And I saw this come up on one of my, um, one of my kind of financial advisor forums that I'm on was a conversation around, you know, clients interested in moving, actually it was to EQ Bank, moving deposit to EQ Bank, but they're worried about the safety of EQ Bank. And therefore, like, how, like, should we only do the 100,000 that's insured by, by CDIC? And again, one of these things, and, and the banks have gotten very good about this. You go into any branch now, and CDIC used to be a pamphlet. Now it's like on a screen somewhere saying that you're, you know, trying to say safety. And I, I liken that to basically a tactic to say, by saying that we're safe, you automatically make everyone who's not doing that seem less safe. And my big frustration there in general is that consumers seem to believe that the challenger banks, like yourselves, are somehow less safe when really it's regulation and things like CDIC that create safe, not size, right? Anyway, that's my, and I think that transparency and, and the advantages that you guys bring to the table are going to basically over time eliminate that argument. And I think that's one of the things that they're, they're afraid of. Andrew, I'll let you either address that or add to what um, you know, the previous question about how, what does it mean to you in terms of your transformation? Yeah, I mean, I think much like Daniel, you know, we, we want, you know, we believe that fundamentally finance should be democratized and we, we want to go and fight for our share of that market, you know, with a consumer that's empowered, knowledgeable, we can, we can win in that marketplace. So it's the, uh, We've got a lower cost structure. We've got good, good uh, digital stack. Our roadmap is fairly transparent. I mean, we're, we're building out uh, new layers of services that we don't offer GSEs. We don't offer uh, RSPs and TFSAs yet. That will be coming soon. We'll be offering foreign currency accounts going forward. We're trying to make money move faster. And I, I, I would actually agree with Daniel that one, one of the biggest impediments our customers have is that we put holds on on money when it comes into our bank because the payment rules are so archaic that uh, that it opens us up to fraud if we allow money to come into the bank because the banks can then turn around and reverse reverse the, the transaction on us within 30 days actually and, and we've allowed the money to go elsewhere so it, it creates a lot of friction in the system as well as a lot of costs I mean, crazy costs about moving money around canada so the rtr is really important but then the hope is that we can partner with fintechs and others and you know maybe there are people that are just focused on less advanced people in society that 
living off of uh, more government subsidies, perhaps working with charities or something to help those folks kind of get, get move up the ladder. But with the insights from open banking, it's quite hard actually to assemble the data around what are somebody's debts, assets and income and so on. Open banking should help somebody sit, sit across from something like that and give them advice off of the tax return mechanism. And that, that then starts to become much more interesting for us as, as a bank where we, you know, where we can then hold funds, whatever, under CBIC coverage or not, as the case may be. But we really want to be thinking about what can a bank provide to that ecosystem and then have a richer ecosystem grow on top of it. Really, we really think the more competition there is, the better off we'll be because we're a flexible, agile competitor that can actually think about that in a way that larger institutions probably can't. I mean, frankly, over the years, what, what each of the banks have tried to do is put a picket fence around each bank and make it difficult for money to move between those banks so they don't have to compete with each other. And an open banking eventually starts to sort of break down the picket fence and we can certainly be a, be a, a bit of a, we can win in that environment. So I mean, Jason, if I could just add two quick things, I think, you know, to, to get it, to get it in particular, Andrew's last point about the picket fence and, and going beyond that, the key element, I think, there... Uh, which is a distinction in the conversation of open banking is enabling right access. So the ability to move money for the consumer to move money using a third party, also referred to as payment initiation, which currently is not part of the conversation in Canada, which is a huge missed opportunity. Because I think that's where a lot of the magic for the consumer happens with, with open banking, not, not in any way, like the read access piece is super important, but we need to evolve quickly to get there. And some of the steps that are being taken on the RTR are positive, but those also need to speed up. Coming back to your first point, I think maybe to, to not summarize, but remind when you look at what happened in the UK, like the fundamental reason that they pushed for open banking was actually a complete lack of consumer engagement in, in their financial services lives. Like that was at the core of all of this. Yeah, yes, competition, yes, innovation, yes, you know, maybe not the best behavior on behalf of the big banks, but fundamentally it was like consumers don't engage because financial services is too difficult, too complex. I don't have enough time to understand this. And financial literacy is, you know, as we all know, generally quite low. So open banking is largely about bringing transparency, insight, and simplifying, simplifying this so people can, as has been said, make better decisions, recognize I'm not in the right credit card or mortgage. And that information, unless I go and find it, isn't available to me in open banking, that, that's brought to life and it's made evident easily to the consumer and then they will make decisions. I think that is another just important point to. So to let me highlight. let me be let me make two statements there. One regarding uh, and this is I've said this on the podcast before. I think it was Dan Egan who said it over at Betterment that his view was open banking is BS. Not open banking, sorry, financial literacy is BS. Like yes, you have to have a base level knowledge of like if, int if higher interest rates are better or worse for you depending on the situation. But too often open too often financial literacy is almost geared towards making everybody a. CFO of their own world, where that's a level of complexity, it's probably too much. I'm going to turn yeah. around the question about the statement you just said, Ben, is it going to be them making the decision? Or will it be companies that basically build intelligent agents that help them make that decision and point them in the right direction, or go to the extent of making that decision for them? I think it'll be all of those things. Yeah. Like I, I think, you know, not to paint the kids, you, you can't paint the consumer with one one brush. I think some will absolutely want their financial lives automated. And if trust becomes central to this, but if they trust the organization they're working with and all of the right safeguards from a, a regulatory standpoint are in place, great. Some, given this new insight, I think will 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 take more action themselves. So I think I think it'll be all of those things. And my point wasn't like everyone needs to be a CFO. I oh, no, completely I appreciate the challenges with financial literacy, but I think this is going to enable everyone a different type of solution to more fully engage or be more comfortable with, you know, the direction of their financial life. So yeah, I think it's really interesting in this space that the, the bloggers and so on that really, the independent financial services bloggers really test these fintech. If the fintech makes a claim, 
which turns out to be false. It's all over. It's, it's really shared quite widely. And that's how you get trust, right? And that's how you how you can build trust is this independent testing. I think some of these ideas. Yeah, I, I took down a certain but, robo-advisor on a blog, but continue. <laughs> ben, I think, Ben, I think I think the, the nuance is that you kind of eliminate the need for financial literacy. Like th there will be, or, or you certainly make it much less of a requirement, right? The, for some, for the, sure. You, you, of course, if you want to have it, that market will always be there. And, and those people are frankly doing probably very well in the Canadian market. But what you're adding is a, is a series of like independent arbiters to determine that it's just a trust-based model for financial literacy rather than like a sophistication-based model for financial literacy. So here's a, here's a, turn, here's a turning point to, to contemplate. So when we look at these metrics, we're typically talking about quantitative evidence, right? Where's the qualitative side of this, right? Like for certain things like deposit rates, right? Like if I need to deposit for 90 days money in the highest rate and safest place, like that's a math exercise, right? But so much of financial services has to do to catering certain things to people's lifestyles, expectations, everything else going on in their lives. How much of a, is there a danger of going too far down the qualitative route and basically forgetting about the, the sorry, the, quali the quantitative route and forgetting about the, qual the qualitative side of people's financial lives? Is that a concern at all? I'll give, you, I'll give you a simple example. I have met with more than one individual who clearly needs financial planning help. Like clearly they have a complex situation. They are an anxious investor, all of that. Yet they have been berated for the last decade about nothing but paying the lowest fee and not paying an advisor to the point where they are literally to the point, even though they need to do it, they cannot break that training for 10 years and they're in paralysis, right? And now that's a very kind of specific niche to my, to my world, but there is no technology that can fully capture and encapsulate every human being's understanding, right? Or every human being's preferences and every human being's desires or goals. Like you can, we can map those out generally, but there's always new ones. Is there a danger of us going too far this rabbit down this rabbit hole? Or is the benefit so great that we can accommodate? But I think, I think the benefit's actually been so far on the other side for so long that I, I can imagine that danger, uh, you know, being real. You know, how many yeah. times you read articles about oh, what you need in this market is a good stock pick? No, you never need a good stock. You need to buy ETFs for the cost, actually. I mean, that's that's the objective evidence. So I, I got a bridge in Brooklyn for you too, but continue on. <laughs> so it, 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 it's, you know, this is a stock pickers market. It helps you re-reading that stuff. I mean, it's all nonsense. And then you look at, say, one of the largest banks has got nearly $100 billion in a plain vanilla mutual funds that's charging around, around about 2% MERs, right? I mean, think about that business. That's $2 billion yeah. being taken off those savings. So yes, giving comfort and being able to sleep at night that you're being well advised is obviously an important thing for many, many people. But you know, surely we can do that while not necessarily just going to the kind of, you know, just the self-direct yeah. uh, thing. There's, there's a middle ground somewhere we got to hit. a middle right? ground somewhere that says, this is a curated fintech experience that gives you, you should be able to sleep at night while being paying reasonable costs for that service. Daniel, uh, you had a point? I mean, I, I think the take is that the whole point of open banking is that we're not the arbiters who have to decide. Like what we're doing is establishing the conditions for a free market and such that like there will certainly be use cases where that makes a lot of sense and certainly there will be use cases where it doesn't but the, but the idea is that you set the conditions and let the market determine what is a high value product rather than like arbitrary arbiters of basically incumbencies so another question so we talked about the million flowers blooming and I, where i do love open banking is the concept of development you know counter to my previous point the development of hyper niches of service Right. I can develop an entire ecosystem of financial services around people who have a common shared experience, geographic region, whatever it is, and make it viable. Cost of entry is now lower and easier. Here's my question. Fragmentation is a cognitive burden on people, right? Having tons of, I mean, that's the one, the one good thing about having five banks in Canada is a six, sorry, I was getting national, is you don't have to do a lot of comparative shopping, just a little. 
and still, despite the fact we have various mortgage issuers now who are not the big five, we still have the majority of the mortgage business going to those companies, but largely because of they already have the relationship, but also if people are doing it themselves, that's where they're going to start. Is there a danger that we have too much fragmentation? And then my bigger concern is that, not never mind the banks, it's the big tech players. It's the Apples and, and the Android, you know, the Android providers at Google that start to provide some of these fintech services and already have been dabbled in this, that start to squeeze out a lot of the independent providers because it's just easier. It comes with the phone. Is that a concern in your minds at all? I mean, I think certainly if Apple takes control of our financial choices, that's, that would be a concern. I mean, they move themselves in a position of big six and you start because you're on your phone and you end up perhaps not with the best value solutions. More generally, though, I, I do think the, you know, I spend a lot of time in the mortgage space and, and know very well, you know, the first nationals, the end caps and so on, kind of come into that space. You know, today, more than 40% of Canadians originate a mortgage through a mortgage broker. And they do get some better choices and they certainly would have done if that had allowed to be, you know, walk into a bank yeah. product, get a bit of the rate spreads on mortgage. Mortgage rates and, and funding costs have come down over time. I think people are making better decisions around subtle things like rate fees. So, yes, of course, there's always danger when you open some of these things up, but uh, the benefits will outweigh those dangers, in my view. I mean, I might add if you look at the business model of a lot of the direct to consumer fintechs, right? It is start with a niche focus, either on a customer segment with a specific product, and then prove that and then build it over time. I think the work that like Daniel and his group is doing the work that Mike Catch and it while simple and his team are doing are good examples of this rebundling. We talk about that, which and I think you're kind of referring to sort of the unbundling of financial services and having all of these different options. I think the more successful fintechs and certainly as the industry in Canada matures is you're seeing a bit more of a, a rebundling and mm -hmm. bringing more services just and, and the work that Andrew and his group are, are doing as well are good examples of the winners, because of their, their customer insight, because of their product development, bring customers on board, and then they can start to serve more of those other needs that they have. And like that is just another version of what the big banks have done, right? Like there's value in diversification. It's very hard to build a really big business off of one like narrow product. So I think you're inevitably going to see that as these fintechs mature, that they actually do start to address more of the needs and, and wants of their customer base. What I'll say is maybe going to be different is, you know, and what open banking would enable is the fact that they don't have to own every single piece of the tech stack, right? They can start to connect to a preferred provider network, to their yeah. ecosystem, and be a concierge in some of those services for their customer, make their lives easier, provide some insight and recommendation if they've built trust, but they don't have to own every single piece of the pie. And yeah. I think that is a really big distinction to the model that that has been used more traditionally. Yeah, I think the, it's the old Jim Barksdale quote that you got there, way to make money is unbundle and rebundle altogether. The, and where, what I like about you said too, and this is a, a common piece of advice I, I'll constantly give startups when they come to me for, for, for insight. It's, it is really hard to be good at tons of things. Like pick the one thing to be world-class at, but every time you add another product line or something different that's away from your core, you jeopardize, like you're going to, I refer to the, the biggest example I always use is the, what I call the crappy CRM problem. There are tons of softwares in my space out there that also have this really crappy CRM built in there because advisors would say, you know, it'd be nice as if I didn't have to use my CRM, I could use that. And the next thing you know is you have this crappy product weighing down your world, what was your world-class product that you now have to support and no one really uses anyway. It's just a waste of time and development cycles. And I think the fact that what you're talking about there in terms of the 
ecosystem bundling and, and partnerships with different fintechs you know, leads us to a better place where if we can have something where everything I need from deposit services to mortgages to investments, everything else is, is a world-class piece of, a piece of kit and they all talk to each other. And maybe there's one common platform for bundling these together and shooting them off. Or maybe I, I choose the one that I choose to spend my time in, but all the other data comes into it. Like we all win. You're absolutely right. I mean, just basically, I mean, a good example in our world for that is our integration with TransferWise to send money overseas, right? So we, mm-hmm. we, uh, as an EQ, uh, so if you actually come through the EQ platform rather than you've got money in the EQ platform already, it's going to be faster and cheaper than using TransferWise in its native form. But we, we can't compete with TransferWise in terms of kind of building an international money service capability, but we can, we can partner with them. And, uh, I mean, it's kind of crazy. You go back to Daniel's point about domestic transfers, you know, it's cheaper. And faster for us to send money to India than it is to send money to Saskatoon from Toronto. I mean, it's it's the craziest thing. So my there's head hurts when I hear these things. Oh. I mean, we can get we can get money to India in a minute and a half. You know, <laughs> take us take us three days to send a wire to Saskatoon costs thirty bucks. It's kind of crazy. <laughs> so, um, oh, what a sad state of affairs. Anyway, gentlemen, so before we wrap up, I want to give you each one last uh, last moment to provide uh, a glimmering shine of insight. So basically, you know, I, I have. Three standard questions I usually give people in in the podcast at the end of it. I'm not going to do that in this case because it would take another 15 minutes. But what is your one optimistic hope or wish or piece of advice you have if the if the commissions are listening? Like, what is the one thing you want them to know as to why this is the most necessary or and listeners to know as to why this is necessary and why this benefits everyone? And I'll go in reverse order from last time. Daniel, I'm going to put you on the spot and go first. Sure. I mean, I think this is going to sound very, fairly basic, but I think that we need to trade open banking for the ethical question that it is. Like to, this, this is a fundamental question of data ownership and it's a fundamental question of consumer rights and mm-hmm. like the, how it sits and who arbiters it and, and all of those kinds of things are like secondary in my mind to the notion of what is in the best interest of consumer and how do you create an educated consumer base. And like too many, I think we would serve ourselves better if we consistently brought ourselves back to that form of the conversation, which is this is the right thing to do for Canadian consumers. And it's not even close in my mind in the argument. Like there is no compelling argument given screen scraping and all the things in the status of the market today. So my push would be, let's continue to make sure that we anchor all of our, like that's common ground in this conversation. Let, let's yeah, just- that's a much bigger conversation around data rights in general, but I think this is kind of like the active battlefield for most of it. I mean, that in social media, but whatever else, you know, like completely agree. Ben, exactly. your turn. Yeah. So maybe to build on Daniel's point, like the other point is this is inevitable. Nothing will change the fact that in in a more digital world, consumers will demand. And if they don't demand, should have a right regardless to the data that, that they're creating. And so we can sit and debate and come up with a million different designs, but this is going to happen. And so we need to decide if we want to set the terms, design the system in a way that, that to Daniel's point, will benefit truly Canadians, small businesses, and, and you know everybody. Or if we want a model to be imposed on us, if we want to start really small and realize that after seven years of open banking and working with open banking in the UK or Australia, other banks or other fintechs from there decide to come to Canada and start to bring that many years of working in this model to bear for consumers, then our industry is going to be in trouble. So let's just do this. That maybe is my message to leave you all with. <laughs> Sooner gets done, the happier I'll be. That's for sure. <laughs> Andrew. But I love, I love the way that Daniel started that one in particular. This is just fundamental. This is about thinking about how we're going to build a, a vibrant society going forward. So it, it's, it's, it's a huge story and it's something that politicians should get their, get their heads around. Um, 
we will all be better off. If the Canadian banks are the most profitable banks in the world and domestic franchises, they make about a 35 to 45% return on equity. And that can't be that can't be good for our society. In fact, those 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 profits should be distributed more widely around our society to the entrepreneurs, to individuals. And open banking is is a way to do that. Um, and I think now is the time. You know, if we're going to build back stronger post-pandemic, there's many things that we can do to, to think about that. We can think about building a high-speed train from Toronto to Montreal. It's going to be much more expensive to build a high-speed train from Toronto to Montreal with less benefit to broader Canadian society. People, people don't live in Ontario and Quebec, for example. Plus, it's all hyperloop. But <laughs> I think it would be much better throwing some investment into modernizing our financial system. It's creating a more inclusive, better financial system. It's going to create much more economic growth than some of those larger kind of mega projects tend to, tend to grab the headlines. Maybe we should do those too. I'm not saying we shouldn't, but we should definitely be leaning into modernizing financial system. Yep. And, you know, we have, as I said in the first podcast, you know, this is this is kind of an innovator's dilemma, except the innovation goes back like 200 years to banking, like in Canada altogether, two or 300 years. And really, they managed to hold on to that. And I'll bring in the comment of is it's uh, Bezos, who says, your margin is my opportunity. That's the way I look at it. You know, at the end of the day, the margins are far too fat and something needs to be done about it. And and for those who are incumbents in the space that are worried about it, I mean, the reality is, is either they have, I'll liken it back to, again, my industry where, where advisors are constantly concerned about price pressure. And I'm just like, well, the only solution is to embrace technology, lower overhead costs, deliver better service, maintain margins, or or deal with it through volume. The banks have had not had to play that game for a very long time. And now we're at a point now where this sort of change is hopefully going to enact I can't even imagine the number in savings and better outcomes for people's lives. So gentlemen, thank you very much for both the time that you've taken today and also the time and effort that you've done in helping be the, you know, front on the frontier of this in Canada. So I appreciate it sincerely. Thank you. For having us, Jason. So that was my interview on open banking in Canada. I hope you enjoyed that. And I hope you could sense the frustration of all parties involved that this needs to happen. And we are laggards and the rest of the world is ahead of us. And the good news is, as I said, because you're not the first mover, you have to learn from everybody else's mistakes. And hopefully we will do just that. So glad to hear from their standpoint that they think that things are actually changing and moving along because frankly, it's desperately needed. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever it's your podcast. And until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca.